Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Al Catrochi, or as most folks call him, Al Q. Al shares his experiences growing up in and around New York City and his migration west. We also discuss Al's new book, The Corbina Diaries. It would make a great gift for that hard-to-shop-for angler on your list. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. This episode's sponsored by our friends at Norvice. Their motto is, tie better flies faster, and they produce the only vice that truly spins. Just in time for the holidays, Tim and Tyler have launched the Legacy C Vice, the legacy vice you all know and love in five amazing colors. Head over to www.nor-vice.com and check them out. Also, don't forget to check out Norvice's holiday promotions, but don't delay. They disappear on December 14th. Now, on to our interview. Well, Al, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Hey, it's great to be here, Marvin. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. And, you know, we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Okay, well, you know, what I can remember as far as uh, my earliest fishing memory would be, as a kid, we used to, we used to fish for something called snappers. They're, they're, ba- they're kind of they're baby bluefish. You know, bluefish kind of go through different stages. They start off as snappers, then they go to tail of bluefish, and then they get bigger as they go. But when they're real little, uh, and that's usually in the beginning of the summer, um, we used to go and fish for them underneath the bridges in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, there was a place called Jamaica Bay where I kind of grew up, and there was a lot of little um, bridges and overpasses along the Belt Parkway. We used to go underneath there, and we used to get a net with two two pieces of broom, a broomstick on each end and, and it had weights at the bottom and we'd wear our sneakers and we'd walk in the water and we'd kind of net our bait. We'd get spearing and then we would take the spearing and we'd put a little float and we'd cast them out and just watch the float until it goes down. We'd catch a you know, t- pile of these uh, snappers and they're really a lot of fun to catch and they're actually pretty good to eat. And then I we used to also use a little lure called a sidewinder. It was a tiny little spoon uh, it was probably maybe a quarter of an ounce or so. And we would fish, you know, the light line, you know, four pound, six pound test and, and uh, catch the snappers that way too. They were really aggressive and they were a lot of fun. I think that was my, kind of my earliest memories of fishing. Yeah. Very neat. And when did you get drawn to the dark side of fly fishing? It's very, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I always fished salt water and I always fished, you know, spinning reels and plugs and all that stuff. And, and uh, I used to read the Saltwater Sportsman as a kid, and I used to see all the articles with Joe Brooks and Lefty and all and Charles Waterman. They all had you know fly rods. These guys were monster fishermen, but they also loved fly fish. And and I always told myself I'd love to do that someday. I I never had a mentor to really take me down that path as a kid. And then when I moved to California, uh, when I was um, I went to college. Um, I came out to California and I started tinkering around with the fly rod and I really didn't get into it. I got into it late. I, I was probably, I would say my early thirties is when I, uh, I connected with, um, with Nick Hersione and that's, he was the guy that really kind of propelled me into the, you know, the fish in the surf and that, that, that it took off after that really. So. Yeah. And what, a, what attracted you to fly fishing and kind of pulled you away from your, uh, your childhood fishing gear? 
uh, I always, uh, it was very mysterious to me. You know, it was like I was trying to figure it out as uh, you're reading about tippets and all these things. And it was really, it, it just allured me that it was just a fun way to do it. And for me, it was almost like, okay, you know, I, I, I did all this other stuff. I, I want to kind of graduate to fly fishing because it seemed like it was almost at the top of the pinnacle, you know, and to do that in salt water for me was, was just like, I, it was, it was an amazing thing to try to do. And, um, it was just something that I just always wanted to do. And then I, once I, I, I kind of found me, I just kind of started reading about it. And, and, and then I connected with, with some of the guys like Nick and some of the other people that really mentored me and, and got me into it. And, and once I, once I, once I caught my first fish on a fly rod, it was over. You know, I was like, this is, <laughs> this is the best, you know, it was basically a glorified hand line, but it was just so, it's such an immediate connection to the end of your line and, and, and feeling the fish. And it was just, it was amazing. It's great. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, you know, what was that transition like moving from gear to fly fishing and, you know, did your conventional fishing experience help you or did it hinder you? You know, what was that like? It didn't, it didn't really hinder me. It, it, um, I think in a certain sense it helped me because I understood how to cast, you know, and I understood the dynamics of a cast. But the, the whole transitioning into the fly fishing world was the whole timing and the fact that you weren't throwing a weight, you were throwing the weight of the line and understanding load and, and, you know, stopping the rod and all that. It was just, it was, I had to reset my mind, but I knew what I had to do. It was just a matter of trying to figure it out, getting my brain and my, my mechanics right. And once, once I did, it was, it was pretty smooth. It was a smooth transition. And for me, as a creative person, it opened up so many lanes for me because now I was like, I could not only get into like even doing a rod build, but you could also, you know, start tying your own flies and, and go into stores and finding weird materials and, and, and designing things and, and see if they'll work. And it, it was like, I was like a kid in a candy shop when I picked up the fly rod. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. It's funny, you know, when you're talking about that, it makes me kind of remember when I first kind of started moving into fly fishing and I came to it late too. Um, I was always scared to go back and touch a spinning rod because I was afraid I was going to mess up my casting. You know, I, I never, I never felt that way. I always, I, I even till today, I love throwing a Zara spook or, um, you know, fishing conventional. I, I like fishing every, every way, you know, to me, the fly rod was just a, a really refined tool to, to, to be able to, um, experience, uh, a, a different way of fishing. And a lot of times a more productive way of fishing, you know, in certain circumstances, the fly rod is king, you know, you can't touch it to anything else, but you know, I'll throw a harpoon if I have to. I mean, I just love being on the water and fishing. So it doesn't matter to me which way I do it. Yeah. It's very neat. And I know from, um, our earlier conversations that even though you, you know, you started fly fishing late, um, that you had an opportunity to really spend time with some of the really great people in our sport. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners who, who were some of those folks that mentored you and, you know, what did they teach you? Well, I took a class when I came out to California because I, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to figure out how to do this fly fishing thing. So I took a class at UCLA called the Art and Science of Fly Fishing with Neil Taylor. And Neil Taylor was a really a great fly fisherman out here. He, he lived up in Lake Kachuma and he was, he was kind of like a lefty Cray in the sense that he was a master uh, marksman. You know, he did a lot of the shows, a lot of shooting. 
and he was a, uh, a champion caster. You know, he did um, bass plug casting and fly casting. He was, he was phenomenal. So I took this class and, and I told him, I said, Neil, I really don't want to learn about insects. I want, I want to be able to grab a fly rod and run to the ocean. And he laughed at me. He goes, Al, you can put on a piece of yarn and catch a fish in the ocean. That's not, you know, anybody can do that. I said, I don't care. That's what I want to do. You know? So he taught me about trout fishing. I really learned everything about trout fishing with Neil and, and, and casting. He showed me a lot about casting. It was great, but that's kind of started me off. But what really propelled me was when I met lefty. And, uh, I, I, it was interesting. There was a fly shop out here called Marriott's fly shop. And I walked in there as a young man and I saw on the board that it said fishing hot Creek, you know, up in mammoth, um, lefty cray. And I, I did a double take. I'm like, lefty cray, that can't be the same lefty cray. So I asked much, is this the real lefty cray? And they're like, Oh yeah. Lefty's going to be doing a class up there at hot Creek. I said, sign me up. I said, how many spots are there? He goes, there's six and we have like one left. I said, sign me up. I didn't even know where Hot Creek was. So I had to get my little Thomas guide map out at the time. I had my little Volkswagen and I drove up to the mountains and I get there and I'm like, where's Lefty? I know he's coming. He's coming. Where's Lefty? All of a sudden a Learjet comes flying down. There's an airport close by and they, they drive Lefty over. And I got to spend three days with Lefty and it was it changed my life. I mean, that was like phenomenal because he taught me how to double hole. And he, he, while he was at hot Creek, uh, he couldn't, <laughs> he laughed at me because he goes, how do you know all this stuff? I, I used to read all the, all the magazines. I knew all the great guys. I knew how I knew about Hal Lyman and Frank Woolner and Charlie Waterman and Milt Roscoe and all these old East coast names because I used to read all their articles. Like, you know, I used to eat them up. And I was asking Lefty about all these people. And he goes, how do you know all these guys? I said, well, I just, I read, I read a lot. You know, I'm really into it. And I said, there's this one uh, cover, Lefty, that just came out on Fly Angler. And it blew me away because it was all the baits that I grew up with. The spearing and, and, and you know, bay anchovies and all that stuff. But it was all done in epoxy. And I, it was like, for me, it was like looking at eye candy. And I said, who is this guy, Bob Popovich? And Lefty goes, oh, that's Bobby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He lives in Seaside, New Jersey. He's a friend of mine, and he's really a great fly tire. And I said, well, I've never seen anything like this. He goes, yeah, yeah, Bobby's really great. He's doing a lot of stuff with epoxy and stuff. And Lefty goes, you know, I'm trying to get him into Umqua as a pro tire. And he goes, he just sent me a video, a VHS cassette on how to tie all these things. He goes, when I get home, I'm going to send you the cassette out and – all I need you to do is just make me a couple of copies. I said, no problem. So a couple of weeks passed by after, we, after I had my time with Lefty and I get this package. And I'm like, I, I couldn't believe it. There's a package from Lefty Cray. I open it up and he sends me this VHS tape um, but, you know, with Bobby tying all these flies that nobody on the West Coast had ever even seen before. So I call up Nick and I said, Nick, I, I just got the Holy Grail. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I, this, I got the how to tie all these amazing uh, epoxy flies from Popovich. We got we to gotta watch. So Nick was a, was a bachelor at the time. He had this like 40-foot television. And he goes, come on over. We'll, we'll watch it. So we, we popped in the VHS. We sat down there like two little kids, and we watched it. And we were blown away. And um, that spring, Nick was actually working for Orbis. We went up to, to the, uh, the San Mateo show. And Nick goes, come up with me. You know, we'll, we'll hang out. And so I went up. And the first day I was walking around and I got back to his booth 
around just before lunchtime. And Nikki goes, hey, Al, you're not going to believe this, but I met your buddy. I said, who? He goes, I just met Popovich. I said, get out of here. He goes, no. He goes, we're going to have lunch with him. I said, really? He goes, yeah. So we had lunch with Bob Popovich. And that lunch fortified a friendship that lasted for, I don't know, 30 years. It's like Bobby invited us back east. We started fishing the vineyard. We started hanging out. I started meeting all these people. And it just... Everything happened from that, from the moment I met Lefty, it changed my life. That's, that, that's how important Lefty was to me. And Lefty remained a friend, my, you know, till, till his passing days. We, we, we used to email and talk to each other all the time. But it's amazing how one person can take somebody and just like, like a pinball, hit you and you, ru- you ricochet somewhere else. And, and that, and, and I, I can never, never say enough about Lefty Craig. He was always giving of, information he was always generous and he he was the guy, one guy in the, in this industry that i could always know i can call and get the right answer you know he always helped me out always helped me out so yeah and it's interesting too because you weren't his only pinball right i mean he's that's exactly right right i mean he exactly right. he's an incredibly generous guy i was had a chance to spend time with him at fly fishing shows in Virginia. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that Bob Popovic's VHS tape. And I think I know the one you're talking about. It's probably the one where he um, takes two vices and puts the string uh, across and, and ties uh, some of his larger patterns. It, it, it's the one where his cat, it's the one where his cat walks across the table. If you remember that part. Yeah. I'll have to go back and it, check. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because so so fly fish TV actually has them and you can buy them and um, so there's some great ones. There's some of Popovics. There's some of uh, of Bob Clouser and Lefty. There's several of those, um, and it's That's just awesome. oh, it's super cool, right? I just think it's um, you know just that old guard of the sport, and um, it's just I think it's super special. Yeah, absolutely. And then you know, getting we got invited back to um, now we're on the West Coast, me and Nick, and you know doing stuff out here but we got invited back east like in the early 90s and we got to fish with you know paul dixon and montauk when he invited all the the writers out to montauk um in it was like june and um he was trying to to, to show everybody that there was a viable flats fishery for striped bass this is really early on and you know i, I was like a fly on the wall i was i was hanging out with those guys and, and everybody was there i mean jose wahibe and lefty and Jimmy Buffett and it was just it was insane you know and um flip wasn't there but the uh the sea lion 2 from the walkers k chronicles was 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 docked there in, in the montauk uh, yacht club and and um john applenap and his dad who who i think they kind of i don't know if they were the executive producers of the show they were all there and it was just an amazing amazing time to be in fly fishing and um everybody got paired up with a different guide each day. And I remember, <laughs> I remember getting, we got, I got paired up with Joe Blados one day and, and Joe was showing me these, these flies, these crease flies. And I go, what the hell is that? And he's like, Oh, this is a, this is one of my crease flies. This is a great fly. And I catch all these fish. I said, Joe, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. And he was laughing and, 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 and we started fishing them and it was slamming fish. And I'm, I'm, I'm fishing crease flies with Joe Blados. It's like somebody pinched me, you know, now thinking back, you know, how, how important that was and how cool that was. But I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and be around some of the, the best people in the industry and some of the big names. And they really shared a lot with me and upped my learning curve and helped me out. And I, I've been doing the same ever since. I, I try to pass knowledge forward. I try to help people out as much as I can. I mean, I, I feel like 
I'm indebted to do so. So yeah, that's awesome. That's been my mantra. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And you know, so for you and fly tying, you know, did you kind of, you know, take the leap for fly fishing and fly tying at the same time, or did you have to fly fish for a little while before you um, got called to the vice? No, I did. I kind of did them hand in hand. I, 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 def, I joined a club out here, a South Bay fly fishing club, and they were mostly freshwater guys. But and that's how I learned how to tie flies. I was tying woolly buggers and just playing around on the vice and learning, you know. And then I started to do stuff, you know, for the surf right away because, like, you know, you could just figure it out. And, and um, it, they always kind of went hand in hand after that. Yeah, very neat. And how long did you tie um, before? Because I know that Umqua carries your patterns before you were able to sell some of your patterns professionally. Um, a guy named John Sherman, who's the Sims rep out here, he actually talked Umqua into doing a surf fly series and they took a couple of my patterns and, um, and the one, the one that was most popular was the beach bug. That was the one that I sold first. And, um, that did really well, did really well for them. It was, it was basically just a, an attractor pattern, you know, that, that didn't foul and, you know, fished pretty, pretty well out here or up in the surf. It didn't really look like much. It was sort of like a shrimpy type of pattern, but that pattern, that pattern got a lot. It's interesting when you tie something and you throw it out into the world you never know where it goes or what, who, who fishes it or who, you know, does something with it. And I remember once seeing an article in saltwater fly fisherman, some guy in, in Louisiana caught like a 35 pound redfish on a beach bug. Okay. He just used a little bit of rabbit at the end. And then another experience, which really blew me away was I hosted a trip once to Christmas Island and we were waiting in the airport to go to Kiribati. It was a Tuesday. And, um, there was another gentleman from a different group. His name was Steve Horgan. And he was an older man and he was from Detroit. And he was just talking to a bunch of the guys that were in my group. And all of a sudden, one of my friends said, hey, Al, come over here. You got to meet this guy. So I walk over there and I said, hey, how you doing? He goes, I'm fine. I go, he, I go um, are you going to Christmas Island? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I go like, you know, every couple of years I go to Christmas Island. He goes, I go by myself. And he goes, I'm a multi-species, multi-species fisherman. I said, really? He goes, yeah, yeah. I just love to catch different species. Um, and I, 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 I catch them, I take pictures, and I come back home, and I try to figure out what they are, and I make a big list and stuff. And he goes, one of my favorite flies is this fly called the Q's Beach Bug. And I go, really? He goes, yeah. I said, well, you know, my name is Al Quattrochi. And he looked at me, and he goes, you're the, you're the Q's Beach Bug guy? I go, yeah, that's my fly. He goes, oh, my God, can we take a picture? I said, of course. So we we, t- we took a picture together and we we struck up a friendship and he sent me all these pictures of these crazy fish that he caught on the Q's beach bug and I, what I did was I made a bi- I made a box a uh, wooden box fly box and I had it engraved with, with a signature and it said Q's beach bug on it and I tied him a, a dozen of them and I sent it to him and he he was just over the moon but I would have never known that if I stopped and talked to him about you know about what he was doing and stuff and it just it turned out that. That was his favorite fly. Who knew? Yeah, very cool. And when you design flies, Al, do you try to? Are you you know do you, do you see sort of an application for from gear fishing in your youth, uh, or are you trying to solve a specific fishing problem, or is it a little bit of both of those? It's it's it's, it's pretty much all of the above. I mean, I learned a lot from Bob Popovich. He really ment- mentored me in fly tying, and Bobby's approach was always, you know, look at the bait 
study the bait, watch how, how it moves in the water and, you know, try to, try to duplicate it and make it durable and you know, simple. And I did, I try to do that with a lot of the different baits we have out here on the West coast. And I also, I do very much so talk to a lot of the conventional guys, the guys that throw plugs because they can do things sometimes we can't as fly fishermen. And I'm always trying to figure out how to accomplish what they accomplish, you know, how they can get something to sink out or, or walk on top of the water or, or whatever. And I'm always, I'm always trying to think outside the box and try to figure out ways to do things that um, are different. So I, I, I definitely like to keep my, my mind open and I, and I like to try to see what other people are doing. And sometimes Sometimes I can improve on it. Sometimes I can, and sometimes I can go a completely different direction. But that's that's the beauty of being creative and, and, and having the opportunity to fly tie because we can do anything we want at the vice, you know. And as long as we understand the materials we're using, you know, th- th- there's so many different applications on making things float or making things sink or making things move, you know, and swim and do all sorts of stuff. So it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Are there some of the kind of next generation of fly tires um, that you like to follow and kind of see what they're up to? Yeah. You know, I like seeing what Blaine's doing, you know, the game changers kind of a cool, cool idea. Um, I, I always like looking at what there's so many great fly tires out there now, especially in, and with the, you know, social media. Now you can have access to so much more than you normally would. But um, there, yeah, I mean, even, even, my, my friend Trevor with his trouser worm, you know, that he was catching carp and trout on, you know, by just punching little, little circular uh, punch holes of uh, craft, craft foam and, and threading them on a, on a string and then making it like an, like a little articulated tail that would float up. I mean, that, that was, I thought, very ingenious, you know, and we used it out here for, in California for carp. And I actually use it sometimes for corbina as like a little red worm, you know, that's, that sits in the sand. So there's lots of ideas out there that you can, you know, kind of incorporate. And but I always try to give credit to the to the people that that came before me. I think this is important for young fly tires. Is you know the only way we move the needle forward in fly fishing is to understand what was behind you. And we've kind of lost that a little bit because everybody kind of changes a color and calls it a new fly and does this and does that. And you know we're all kind of guilty of doing similar things to that effect. But you should always try to go back and try to understand the history of, it, of the sport and how it evolved. And if there's a certain fly, you know, go back to the uh, originator and say, hey, you know what? This is a, this is an application of a fly that, you know, Bob Cloud, it's a Clouser style fly or, you know, this is a, a lefty style bait fish or, you know, because there, there's only so many things you can do in fly time. And you, I always try to give credit to the people that came before me because, um, I'm living off of their, on their backs, right? On their shoulders. So um, it's good to do that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So your your book, The Corbina Diaries, I don't know, is it officially, has it officially been out even a week yet? Yeah, it's a little over a week. <laughs> a little over a yeah. week. And, and so I was really curious, um, you know, this is your your first book. And I, I think you, you told me before we started recording that it was kind of, gestating for about 20 years. Talk a little bit about the genesis of the project. Yeah. Um, we have this crazy fish out here called the Corbina and it's, it's in the croaker family and it shows up in large numbers in the early summer. And I think that's because they might be spawning. We don't really know a lot about them, but they are, uh, 
they come in really shallow. They almost have a triangular shaped body. They don't have a, an air bladder. So they can, they can literally just glide in half an inch of water. And they come in in large numbers, primarily when the sand crab beds start showing up big time in California. So um, they primarily feed in, uh, at that time of the year on sand crabs. And, you know, when I first came to California, I used to see these things all the time. I used to kick them in the water. I mean, they're just everywhere, but, but they were very finicky. And a lot of people said they were hard to catch. And the bait, even the bait guys have a hard time sometimes catching. So I caught my first one, I think in the early nineties. And I was just literally not even targeting them. I was fishing for perch, I think. And I caught one and my buddy Nick was telling me, man, that's fantastic. You got a Corbina that really hard to catch here you know, fish of a lifetime, really, you know, and that's mainly because we were throwing heavy lines. We were throwing, you know, lead core shooting heads with amnesia running line and, you know, trying to get as far out as you can in the surf line. And there was no, nothing subtle about throwing those big heads. But when around 2000, things started changing. There was, you know, a, a lot more young guys were out there fishing and, and the line started becoming integrated and we can get these, sinking lines that were, you know, all one piece and we can get them lighter. You know, they would, they would still sink pretty good, but they were lighter. They were like 200 grain, 175 grain. And they kind of changed the game a little bit because now we could make a little bit more delicate presentations, but the flies were still hitting heavy. We were using epoxy flies, trying to, trying to figure out how to do sand crabs. And it was like throwing a pebble in the ocean and they would scatter. These fish were very, very finicky. They would scatter all over the place. So it wasn't until my buddy Paul kind of played around with a, a fly that Del Brown created called the, the Merkin fly. And he called it the surfing Merkin. It was just an adaptation of, of Del's fly, but it landed soft. And it and that allowed us to really put these sand crabs softly in front of these fish. And when they would start to come in and, and feed, they would see those sand, little sand crabs swimming across the bottom and, and we would get them. And we started routinely catching Corbino. It was like we broke the code. And we started catching them. I started writing about it. And I got my buddy Paul involved writing some articles and doing presentations. But still, nobody was really catching on because they were difficult to catch. And, and it wasn't, it was like you had to know the time period of when they were going to feed. There would be a magic window on, the, on different tides of when they would actually start to feed. And, and it was, it was, it was definitely a learning curve. So like if you jumped into the Corbina game, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you, you might, you might've struggled a couple of seasons and not really get any until you finally maybe land one. Like I, I know people that went two or three seasons and didn't get one, you know, and then finally they catch them. Now you can go out and guys get, you know, 20 a season, 50 a season. I don't know how many, but it's only because of we, this, this whole um, idea of, of the way we approach them, the lighter lines, the softer flies, uh, understanding their feeding habits, understanding the, the patterns that they, that they go into. And I talk about all of that in the book. Um, it, it, it makes it a lot easier now to go out there. And, and I think if people get the book, pick it up and read it, they'll, it's pretty much giving you a DIY on, on how to be, uh, have enough, there's enough information in it. It'd be dangerous to, to go out there and actually try to get one. So uh, it's cool. They're one of the toughest fish, uh, I, I think personally to land on a fly rod. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I listened to your interview with the Bowman's and you guys were kind of trying to, to discuss whether you thought it was harder to catch a permit or not. And I'm assuming that it was that challenge is what kind of drew you in and to kind of crack that code. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, going, I remember going down in the mornings and if I got a bump on a fly, that was a win. I was like, wow, man, I got my that fish bump my fly today. That was awesome. <laughs> you know? And, and, and it, it took, you know, it took a while. And then, and then we would catch one and, and I, I, I go, okay, I'm going to save this fly. Cause this is a fly, man. This is fly. And then I would fish that fly for another week or two and never even catch one. And I'm like, Oh man. And then finally, when we got that Merkin really, really changed it. Cause then it, and, and then the Holy Moly is just an ad, adaptation of the Merkin, but it was basically those, that's sand crab style fly. You know, when you strip it and it lays underneath the sand and it forms like a little, almost like a little bubble that, that kind of crawls along the sand and they see that they think it's a fleeing crab. They go right over it and suck it right in. A lot of times they'll, they'll even get it way back in their crutches crushers they really want that fly that's that's what that was the uh, the ability to, to to change the game figuring out what they were going to eat yeah that's cool yeah very neat and you know uh some of my listeners may not know this but in your non-fishing life you're a partner in a creative agency and if you haven't seen the book yet folks i mean it's beautifully laid out beautifully designed very different from most uh fishing or fly fishing books i've ever seen and i've was curious, Al, if you could just share with us kind of what you were trying to achieve from a design perspective when you laid out the book. Absolutely, I don't like to do the same thing twice. I'm not, I'm not that guy, and I, and I love reading different fly fishing books, and I've read many, many, many fly fishing books, and they're all awesome. They're all awesome, but they all kind of look the same. So I wanted to do something a little different, and in, in advertising, there's something called disruption. And a lot of the big advertising agencies use that term. And basically what it is, is, you know, if you're black, I'm going to be white. You know, if you're red, I'm going to be blue. I want to stand out. I don't want to be like everybody else. So I decided when I designed this book that it was going to be kind of like a coffee table book, but with information and, and illustrations and really cool photography. And I wanted every page to be a discovery. So every, every time you turn a page, it's different. You're not going to see the same thing each time. And I think it, for me, it's kind of fun because uh, it takes you on a journey through the book and, and it's, it just keeps you interested. So uh, that was my, my, my premise was try to do something that was different, but yet, you know, exciting and fun. And, and, you know, you look at the magazines, the fly fishing magazines today, like the Drake and tail and stuff, they, their layouts are really great. You know, they're fun. They're, it's not the same cookie cutter thing that goes through each magazine everyone might be a little different they might they might change the font on one one uh one article or they might run a big spread on one article and you know different photos and maybe that's one's an illustration maybe some and that was the concept i wanted to have something that kind of felt more like a a fun uh periodical type of diary-ish type of a book and i i think i kind of accomplished it yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful book. And, you know, one of the things that struck me, I had a chance to spend some time with it um, before the interview, is you you can really see in it that it's it's an homage to this small group of people that cracked the code and then kind of shared it with the next group of people. And, and I was wondering, you know, for my listeners um, who don't live in Southern California, which is probably a good chunk of them, can you tell us a little bit about that culture? Yeah, you know, I, it's almost like the skateboard culture, you know, in, in California when when the, when the kids started dropping into the empty swimming pools, you know, and using those as skate ramps. I kind of felt we, we, we in a certain sense, we, we kind of doing the same thing. We we discovered a really cool fish that was always there, 
but no one really wanted to try to attempt to catch it with a fly rod and, and try to catch them in in a way now that it's, it's doable. You know what I mean? It's like, we've, we've, we've gotten to the big wave and we, we actually got down that wave, you know? Um, so there was a group of guys, uh, probably maybe 10 to a dozen guys that, you know, every year I would see them on the beach and, and they were up from, you know, anywhere from Santa Barbara down to San Diego, you know, wherever the fish were, we'd end up all being at the same place, you know, looking at each other like, Hey, you know, and we called each other the Corbina patrol. We just kind of made a, a funny name for each other. And I started making t-shirts and decals and, and we were on some of the different boards and the boards we were on were mostly spin, bo- you know, spinning conventional boards, you know, and we were showing these guys, these spin guys, Hey, look at this, you know, we're catching these fish on flies, you know? And they were like, Oh man, those guys, those Corbina patrol guys, they got something going on, you know? And we kind of created this little cult, this little culture and we all learned from each other. We, everybody was pretty much open to sharing and, and, you know, talking about stuff and learning about stuff. And, and we just kind of, uh, we, we moved it along. We moved that needle over the, I'd say the course of maybe, maybe 10 years, you know, we, we just really, you know, got it to a point where it got, it got to a point where one of my buddies, John, who's really a good fisherman, and he was literally taking pieces of bamboo, just a crooked piece of bamboo and putting guides on it and catching Corbina on bamboo rod like a like an old bamboo rod or uh i think he um he even used once a those korean telescopic rods like an 18 footer or something and i think he got a corbina on one of those we were just trying to do different things on how to catch these fish just because we were having so much fun and um so that's kind of how it 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 generated you know and i just want to talk a little part of the book in the beginning is really an homage to those 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 buddies of mine that were out there just pounding it and uh, trying to learn from each other, trying to figure it out. Yeah, very neat. What was the writing and editing experience like for you? Um, you know, it was a little painful, but <laughs> at the same time, it was it was good because you know we. Well, I shouldn't say it was good, but you know, with the COVID um, lockdown thing, and I had moved my office to my home, so I had all my computer stuff available to me during the day I would work, you know, at my, my company. And then at night I said to myself, you know what? I have all my stuff. I have, I don't know how many years, 20, 25 years of photography and stuff. I got to really start doing this. I, if I don't do this now, I'll never get the opportunity to do this because I've, I've been threatening to write a Corbina book for 15 years. I felt like I've been pregnant for 15 years and I finally, I popped out this kid and um, it, it allowed me to focus. It allowed me to write an outline and ask myself, okay, you know so much about these fish. You've done this for such a long time. How are we going to organize those thoughts? How are we going to get this into some sort of a, a book form? And and I just made myself an outline, and I, I reached out to Dr. Milton Love, who's a great marine biologist, and he was willing to um, give me some information about sand crabs and some of the history of the corbina. And, and then I, I have a lot of friends in the industry that I said, you know, guys, everybody loves to side fish can you guys give me good quotes? So I have a bunch of really cool people giving me great quotes about sight fishing. And, and I just, um, started going, approaching it, like building a house, you know, I, I got my framework and then I would just start to knock them out one section at a time, you know? And then when I got it all together, then I kind of put it down in, in a, you know, some, in, in a form where I could actually visualize it. And I started breaking it up into pieces and 
figuring out how the book was going to lay out. And I got really lucky this year. I, I, I found a really cool secret spot that one of my, that, that kid, Chris Nichols uh, had turned me on to. And I, in one day, I probably got 10 of the best photos I've ever taken on, uh, for Corbina um, this past season. And that all went into the book. That's every, all the little pieces came together. A kid from San Diego said, Hey Q, I got this great drone footage, uh, of, a of a sequence of, of, you know, hooking a Corbina. I said, would you send it to me? Absolutely. So uh, all these little pieces came together and everybody, it was really a family collaborative thing. All my friends gave me, gave me little bits and pieces. And, and, and I was fortunate to be able to, you know, round it all up and, and put it together and, and organize it. And then, the editing thing, you know, sending it out to friends and family and stuff. Everybody read this and help me if there's typos. And it was really like a, you know, it was, <laughs> it was a homemade thing. You know, we, it, it wasn't like a, you know, I didn't have a publisher that, that did this for me. I did everything. So um, it was kind of a cool experience, but it was, you know, it was, it wasn't easy, but, but I'm glad I did it. And I'm so happy. I got the monkey off my back and I got this book. It's a book done because it's, it's been something I've wanted to do for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And and Al, what what was the greatest challenge or surprise in the process? Greatest challenge or surprise? Well, being in COVID nineteen enabled me to do the book, so that was an unexpected thing. Had it had we not been in a situation where I had the ability to to, to really focus like that, uh, it, it probably would have never happened. Um, trying to think of what surprises oh yeah here's a surprise one of my friends called me and said hey yeah check this out i just went to a garage sale and i bought all these really cool magazines called uh angler magazine it was a california uh fishing magazine from the 70s and he goes i just found this really cool article about uh, nick Curcion wrote about catching his first corbina i said no way he goes, yeah. I said, can I, can I get that? He goes, yeah. I said, so he gave me the, uh, the article and I made a nice copy of it. And I called Nick and I said, Nick, do you remember this magazine? He goes, Oh my God. Yeah. I said, would you mind if I published this page? He goes, Oh, absolutely. So that was a great thing that just came out of nowhere. It was like, you know, serpentipity, you know, man. It just, it happened. And, um, so a lot of little things like that happened that made it special. Yeah. Very neat. And where can folks find the book? Okay, there's a, a an online store called Love L O V E two the number two flyfishmedia dot bigcartel dot com. That's that's the store. Or you can if you go to alquatrochi dot com, um, it's like my little website. It's linked up at the top, and it's you spell my last name as Q U A T T R O C C H I. So you can either go to alquatrochi.com or you can go to love2flyfishmedia.bigcartel.com and the book will be there. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'll drop those in the show notes too. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, Al, you've done a lot in your angling career and uh, you're certainly not done by any stretch of the imagination, but I was curious, um, you know, what else you wanted to accomplish in the sport before you hang up the rods? Well, Marvin, I got to tell you something. A couple of years ago, I accomplished what I always wanted to accomplish, and I don't think I could ever beat it. I um, I, I landed a, a close to eighty pound rooster fish off the surf in Baja on a side fish on a fly. I don't think I'll ever beat that that accomplishment because for me, you know, catching a fish side fishing off the beach is the pinnacle. 
uh, fly fishing for me personally. And to do that on such a magnificent species um, it was just a, it, it, I still pinch myself and I still remember that day vividly um, how I, I, I landed that fish. And that was, that's it. I mean, I can literally hang up my rod at this point and knowing that I accomplished that. And that's something that I've always wanted to do is land a nice size fish off the beach. And I, I never thought I'd catch him. Uh, the 70 to 80 pound rooster off the beach on a fly. It was unbelievable. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And, you know, talking about COVID, you know, you have all this outreach and educational stuff that you like to do. And I'm sure COVID has certainly disrupted in 2020. But can you share any of the events that you hope you're going to be able to hold in 2021? Yeah, there's a few things. I'll be doing some Zoom stuff. And uh, another thing that's Interesting is I, I connected with a friend, this, this, this young guy named Joshua Schwartz. He's a top chef. And we're going to be doing a thing called Travel Creole Hospitality. And what that is, is um, we're going to literally take a five-star restaurant anywhere we go. So um, we're going to do our first one, hopefully in July. We're going to do a trip up the Sacramento River uh, to Striped Bass. We got three guides and only for six guests. But we got this amazing James Bond house and we're going to have unbelievable food and we're going to do a, a beer tour at the Sierra Nevada Beer Brewery and we're going to have live music and it's going to be a really cool experience for, for people. So it's going to be a little bit different than what people have done in fly fishing. So I'm looking forward to that. I don't know where that's going to go, but that's something that I have planned. Um, the other thing that is happening, I, I think I can talk about it, is um, I, I'm going to be the Western uh, editor for Tail Magazine, and, and I, they want to have more of a presence here on the West Coast. You know, it's a great East Coast and, and Southern uh, Coast magazine. So I'm going to try to help obtain some content from here, from California, and, and I think we're going to try to do some, some fun articles on California. So I'm looking forward to helping out the uh, editor there. Um, and other than that, I'm just going to try to keep keep pushing along and, you know, tying flies, writing stuff, um, trying to help kids get into the sport and get off the vices and um, do what I do. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. And what's the best place for people to uh, get in touch with you and to keep up with all your adventures? Um, I can be emailed at love to fly fish media at gmail.com. And if they want to just check the, uh, the website I have, I'm, I'm always putting up really fun stuff. That's just, that's alquatrochi.com. That's the best way to see where it's going on. Got it. And you're also on Instagram too, right? I am. Yeah. It's, I think it's just alquatrochi. Cool. It's beer. Yeah. And I'll drop all those in the show notes and, um, you know, Al, it was great spending time with you. I really enjoyed your book, and um, I appreciate you carving out a little bit of time for me. Marvin, it, it, it tickles me that you say that you love my book because I appreciate your uh, your um, your candid uh, explanations, and, and I love what you do, and I I, love, I really like your, your podcast, and I'm, I'm just grateful to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Well, it was my pleasure, and I'm, again, super appreciate you making the time for me. Have a great evening. All right, take care. 
Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, a shout out to this episode sponsor, our friends at Norvice, www.nor-vice.com. Head on over there and check out all the great products and their holiday promotions. But remember, they're done on December 14th, so don't delay. Happy holidays, everybody.